And today we're going to be in Ezekiel chapter 34. And as you maybe were reading ahead, because I also send out ahead of time what we'll be covering. Some of you, if you're reading through this week, have to say... This one's a little more difficult. And when we were in Isaiah 53, it talks about the Messiah. When we're in Jeremiah 23 and in Jeremiah 33, we heard something about the Messiah. This one's all about shepherds. Now, it does mention David once or twice, but this is also one of those messianic prophecies. But I'm going to have to kind of break that out a little bit differently. And for those of you that uh, can see the screen here, one of the things we want to talk about is how this really is a good example of where Ezekiel, uh, speaking the word of the Lord, is God is judging and condemning the false shepherds, the wicked leaders who exploit others. But even in the midst of this judgment, we also see God's grace, the idea of the future restoration of people to a place of peace. It talks about the Davidic king. Well, that's obviously the coming Messiah, who's Jesus Christ. And we'll even look at some of the connection between John chapter 10 and Ezekiel 34. So that's what we're going to do. And if you look at the handout, you'll see it breaks down into three sections. The first is, in a sense, where we see how Jesus saves penitent sinners, but also judges those people who are calloused and unrepentant. And so, again, we're going to be working our way through that. And Parker also mentioned my radio program. Even if you listen tomorrow, we've got uh, um, Brian Hughes, State Senator Brian Hughes on the first hour. We've got Jay Warner Wallace, who talks a lot about apologetics. The next hour, we have Christian Overman talking about worldview. So if you ever want to go to pointofview.net or listen on AM 1160, you'll have a chance to hear some of those materials. And matter of fact, some of the things we'll talk about today may even show up on the program as well. Let's get into Ezekiel chapter 34. And here again, he says, The word of the Lord came to me, the Son of Man, prophesy against the shepherd. Shepherds of Israel prophesy and say to them, even to the shepherds, thus says the Lord God, ah, shepherds of Israel have been feeding yourselves. Should not shepherds feed the sheep? And so the implication here is now this is all about those false teachers, those corrupt priests, those shepherds that were not feeding their sheep. And so we see already that God's love knows no bounds, and uh, he stands in opposition to those who might be opposed to us. Uh, we see also that uh, as we're going to go through these first ten verses, is first a judgment against these unrepentant sinners. But then, as we move through the rest of the chapter, uh, also the idea of restoration. So judgment and restoration is kind of a brief overview here. Verses 3 and 4, I love how it talks about here, uh, because it talks about the fact that, you know, you should be feeding. You eat the fat, you clothe yourself with the wool, you slaughter the fat ones, but you do not feed the sheep. The implication is, again, you would look at a shepherd that doesn't feed the sheep. A shepherd that uh, doesn't take care of the sheep, and you would see there is something seriously wrong with that individual. But likewise, this illustration is, here you've had these priests uh, that have not been shepherding the flock. And so, again, this idea of a shepherd is certainly something that meant a great deal. Uh, most of us today don't have friends that are shepherds. Uh, if you travel to Israel, I might mention, by the way, Paul Barak is going to be on Wednesday. We're going to talk about the next Israel trip we're going to be taking, and I think he'll be here next Sunday, so we'll have a chance to talk about 
about that. When you go over there, you see shepherds, but we don't see it so much here. But here we also see how David is likened as a shepherd, which he, of course, was. And we see that in 2 Samuel chapter 5. So even there, there's a connection between the shepherds and David and the person that will eventually sit on that throne of David. Didn't we hear today about uh, Jesus uh, first of all, was prophet last week, then priest this week. What's next week? King, you know, so we'll have that, you know, so we'll get into that series that uh, we've been uh, covering there in the worship service. Then we see as well, because of this poor leadership, everything's scattered all over Israel. And instead of self-sacrificial care, the shepherds instead are hold on to their own power, they hold on to their own prestige, their own privilege, and as a result, uh, there is really a need for them to have a good shepherd. Now, this kind of raises a question. If we don't have a good shepherd in Israel, in Judah at that time, and these are all scattered, then the question is, if Judah's shepherds are taken away, if God judges them, who's going to guide the people? And so, again, this is the idea that God will step in, remove the false shepherds, remove those individuals that are teaching false ideas because they're no longer feeding the flock, but they're actually enriching themselves. And so God will ultimately guide them. And eventually we're going to see the connection between the good shepherd in John 10, Jesus, and the future idea of even the kingdom that will come as a result of the second coming of Jesus. But again, we see also that God will come and protect and guide his own, even if they don't have a shepherd, even if they don't have a priest. Uh, Today we learn about the great high priest Jesus. And of course, even then, that answers another question about who will be the priest for the people. And of course, he uses the same kind of language, which you see if you go back to chapter 5, verse 8, in which there's this denunciation of Jerusalem as well. So we're in the midst of all of these ideas in which judgment in these first ten verses are brought against those false shepherds. But now let's see the comparison. If you want to hold your finger and go to John 10 or just simply follow along in John 10, now we see that Jesus is, in a sense, picking up that idea, that metaphor, that illustration, that icon to now begin to express that. Lots of times I've said you can't really understand some of the things Jesus says in the New Testament unless you read the Old Testament. And here's a classic illustration. Three examples I give you here. First of all, Jesus does not exploit his people, but instead Jesus serves them with humility and love. So here's the one contrast, you know, the bad shepherd and the good shepherd. Number two, we see that those false shepherds actually were out for themselves. But instead, we see that Jesus seeks out the lost sheep and brings them into the kingdom by his grace. And I put down Luke 15, very familiar passage there. And then finally, there's no sense of restoration. There's judgment against the false shepherds. But here we see Jesus restores those who call on him, offering peace and a new life through his finished work. So the whole time Jesus is using this illustration of I am the good shepherd in the minds of the Jewish people. They had probably read Ezekiel 34 a lot more than, candidly, most of us in this room have. You know, sometimes if we read Ezekiel 34, it's when we're reading through the Bible, when we're reading through the whole poem, going, I mean, we've probably scanned it pretty quickly. But that had real meaning that here, 
We know that there were false shepherds in Judah, and now I'm the good shepherd, and I'm going to replace what has been the corrupt priesthood that you have had before. And if you don't see that connection between what Jared Stevens said a minute ago, I don't know if I can make it any clearer, because here is the great high priest who actually has come and put in that priestly office somebody who is what? Without sin. And so we see that. Now, verses 11 and following, we now have a section here about God seeking people out, because now, in the midst of this judgment, we also have God's grace. And what we see here is unlike the rulers who look to devour and consume the people, verse 10, instead, here God is now out seeking to sustain and help those who wander far, even far from him, even those who may be lost sheep. And we see that God takes over from these disgraced human leaders, these individuals who were the bad shepherds, and instead brings them together and feeds them as well. Then Ezekiel uses an interesting phrase, and we see that in verse 12 here, because in verse 12 it's talking about this idea of indeed seeking out those individuals and sheep, but then rescue them from all the places where they've been scattered on a day of clouds and thick darkness. And this was the idea of, again, sometimes if you travel when you have been in a lot of fog, or you've traveled and you've been in the midst of maybe even a tornado or something like that. Or yesterday it was raining enough, you could probably appreciate that. I know Suzanne said when she was driving down 75, it was raining so much you almost couldn't see the road, right? And so if you've ever sensed when you, you, you really don't know where you're going, you don't know what's happening. There have been a few times when, uh, before we had these cell phones, I'm driving, I remember one time driving in Pennsylvania, and I said, I'm hoping I'm going in the right direction, because I have not a clue. Between the fog and the fact that this is a country road, and I don't know where I am, that's the time when you really are most dependent upon the Lord. And this is the illustration here of clouds and thick darkness. Uh, where indeed this is the idea that maybe this could be the most terrifying time. And it's an illustration used both in Joel and Zephaniah. So I gave you the, some of those verses. If you want to write those down, you can look at those in your quiet time. Because again, I ask how many people this week in their quiet time read Zephaniah. And I think the answer would be slim and none. Maybe zero. Uh, maybe one out of a hundred, if I'm lucky. So these are some other places where that phraseology shows up. And it's all just to describe kind of the, the aimlessness that sometimes we go through. Even today, you may not necessarily have thick clouds that are visible but you're still trying to figure out, what am I doing? Where am I going? What's, what's the next step? And this is the idea there, that even in the midst of that confusion, there's God's great love. Then, of course, we can compare that, as I like to, again, to the New Testament. Remember what Jesus' mission was. To seek and to save that which was lost. And then later on, even to talk about saving the lost sheep of Israel. So again, you can see the connections between some of the things Jesus is saying in Matthew and in Luke and what is found in Ezekiel 34. Then finally, we see this idea of uh, the richness of the land. And this is something that's really important because they had seen the land go like fallow. Uh, they were not necessarily seeing bountiful crops and things like that. And so here is this idea that there is this promise that God will do five things. First of all, God will be their nurse. You can see that on the screen there. It talks about binding up their wounds. So first of all, God will be their nurse. 
Number two, God will be their rescuer. We see that in verses 11 and 12. Then it also says that God will be your protector. See that in verse 15. Then we also see that God will be your provider, even in the midst of a lack of plenty, and maybe even during a time of famine and things that they might face. And then finally, God will be your guide, verses 11 and 16. That's pretty good characteristics, aren't they? If nothing else, it's just uh, some of those characteristics we see of uh, God. And I mentioned just a week or two ago that uh, we're going to have EJ in my radio studio. We're going to talk about his book on all the characteristics and attributes of God in his new book. And this is just a short list. As 104, I think, you know, so uh, I've only given you five of 104. By the way, when we do get him in studio, I hope a few of you will come out so we can all cheer him on as uh, we've talked about his new book. So anyway, I just thought I'd mention that real quickly. Verses 16 and 17. By the way, you like that? That's a pretty good plug, right? Okay, let's go on to verse 16 and 17. And here we talk about, again, the problem with the leadership and what is taking place there. But instead, we see the insteads. And I love the list as well. Instead of abusing and injuring people, what do we see? God heals the hurting. Instead of exploiting the weak, we see God strengthens them for good works. Instead of protecting the privileged, God hunts them down for judgment. And instead of oppressing the people, God sustains the people in justice. These contrasts all the way through these, I think, are really powerful when you kind of unpacked some of the metaphor being described as the shepherd. And so then, of course, we have this idea of the good shepherd, which, of course, Jesus plays upon. And I give you a couple of references. John 10. This would be a great devotional for you this week. Mark down John 10. Look at all the things Jesus said about being the good shepherd. And if you want, you might also back up and see where Jesus also is referred to as what? The bread of life. Now, he gives this right after he's fed the 5,000. And so he recognizes that all of them are following over the Sea of Galilee. And he's now in Capernaum and they're all looking for food again. And he now moves them from physical food, bread, to spiritual food as well. And, of course, then Jesus offers new life under the new covenant. We see that. And if nothing else, it's the idea that those who call upon Christ in faith experience what I would say is a wellspring of life flowing out from the Spirit, which is described by Jesus as well. Well, last few verses, and then we'll get into the Ask Kirby questions, because we've already looked at judgment. We've now looked at restoration. Finally, we look at the idea of Jesus as a loving and protective guide for us as well. And so we see this idea of guide. And so having spoke of the coming Messiah earlier, Ezekiel now paints a picture of just kind of peaceful existence. Instead of them being dispersed and scattered and all over the place, he's talking about wholeness and harmony. And when he references this idea of a covenant of peace in verse 25, you can see there, it's really calling to mind this covenant relationship that Judah has with God. Then we also see that, uh, indeed, the people start looking forward to a day when the Messiah will come and rule and reign. And, of course, we can talk about the fact that ultimately Christ secures our final peace. But the complete fulfillment, which we'll talk about in just a minute, comes when he comes again. 
Jesus will reign and rule from Jerusalem and we will have peace on earth and we will actually have a new heavens and a new earth. And so interesting enough, when we talk about peace on earth, goodwill to men, if you really look at that, that Carol really talks about the future peace that will take place that we have yet to experience. And then, of course, we also have this idea of a grounding as well. And so he brings in this idea of uh, security against threats. Security uh, that will provide abundant blessings and even security that will provide human uh, deliverance from human oppression. And so we see some ways in which actually he is providing safety for those individuals. God's people can look forward to his care in every phase of life, trust him in his plan and uh, actually feel that they will have safety in the world in which they are actually living their lives. And then Ezekiel points to a time when all the land experiences God's favor. And we see that, I think, in the future. And if you think about this, they had lived in times of famine. They had lived in times in which there was not abundance. We are privileged in this country. There's never probably been a time when you walked into a grocery store and said, there's nothing there. Now, some of you, maybe they lived in Florida when there's a hurricane, have seen that happen, maybe, um, or when there was um, some kind of difficulty. But we enjoy this abundance. But imagine if you lived in a time where you just weren't sure where the next meal was going to come from. You weren't sure if the land was going to have abundance. And to have this idea of the land experiencing God's favor, that must have been very encouraging to them as well. And under God's care, no aspect of creation would hold back from blessing the people. So it's a promise for the future. And finally, for those living under exile, they faced pain, they faced shame, but if nothing else, God offers them the future promise of deliverance. He preaches a message to the people in exile that someday there will be restoration. Instead of hunger, God offers satisfaction. Instead of fear, God offers joy. And instead of exile and separation, God offers a new identity. So if you were a Jew to read Ezekiel 34, it would have been encouraging even in the midst of that judgment. And if nothing else, I hope I've tied at least a few connections between Ezekiel 34 and John 10. Now, I would encourage you to read John 10 this week, and that would be just a look perhaps at the good shepherd and what a contrast it is to the evil shepherds that he is talking about. Well, if you're new to the class, one of the things they can do is ask me questions. And I get a lot of them. Matter of fact, I've got a few people saying, when are you going to get to my question? I'm getting there. We're getting there. You know, uh, There are more questions than there are time, but I'm going to try to do my best. But the two that came that I thought were most appropriate, the first one was kind of a scientific question. So this is going to be slightly scientific, but we're not going to turn this into a biology 101 class. But people wanted to know they'd seen this new study that just came out that actually suggests that all human beings came from two adults. What? Okay, this actually is a journal article that appeared in the journal Human Evolution. So the people that are writing this are evolutionists, okay? Actually, geneticists, but they have they believe in evolution. They don't believe in Genesis, as far as I can tell. Matter of fact, it's pretty obvious, as you'll see one of the quotes in just a minute. That's not exactly what they expected. But they're saying it looks as if all of humanity can be traced back to two individuals. Well, it's even more than that. First of all, here's what it looks like. Okay, 
By the way, it looks a lot better up there than it does on the screen here. This screen is really getting bad. But anyway, up there, research reveals that all of humankind originated from two adults. So this is what's showing up in the scientific journals. Okay, what's going on here? Well, these are individuals, these two scientists, that have surveyed what are called kind of genetic barcodes. I'll show you what one looks like in just a minute. And they actually looked at the genetics of five million animals, including human beings, representing about 100,000 species. And because they see this, this kind of collection of pattern, they're suggesting that maybe they're, because they believe in evolution, they believe that all these pongid apes were evolving in Africa, but somewhere along the line, all these different lines just came down to two. And then, if that's not enough, where they say that basically the humanity that we have around us goes back to a pair of adults... And if that's not interesting enough, they also found the same pattern with nine out of every ten species going back to a pair or a few pairs of animals. Now, you're smiling because you can see where this might lead if indeed this stands up. And so, first of all, what do these barcodes look like? Well, you can do what's called a genetic karyotype. I won't get into all the details. It's like a genetic map. And they can go back and look at some of these pieces of DNA. They can look at the DNA in the nucleus. They can look at mitochondria DNA. They can look at other spare pieces of DNA. And they keep looking at this, and they say that after looking at 5 million animals, represented 100,000 different species, they all seem to come back to a fairly small group. Here's one of the articles. Uh, the speculation that humans and animals sprang from a single pair, as did animals. Okay. How do we think this through? Well, first of all, let's talk about these individuals. Uh, one of the individuals was in this country. Another one is at the University of Basel in Switzerland. Looks like Suzanne and I are going to get to go to Switzerland next year just on my way to go speaking in Hungary, and we'll actually go through Basel. If we have any time in Basel, I'm going to knock on the door of this guy and say, i got to hear this story from you directly. But here, this guy's an evolutionist, okay? And he said, the conclusion is very surprising, and I fought against it as hard as I could. Why? Because the idea is, is that all these animals and human beings have been evolving, so you're going to have all sorts of different strains, and it looks like it goes back to two. And again, this is published in the journal Human Evolution. Now, what they argue is, is that humans and these many species are roughly the same age evolutionary. So the study shows that most Earth, life on Earth got some kind of jump start about 250,000 years ago. In other words, they're coming up with maybe there was some kind of massive cataclysm or massive extinction 250,000 years ago. Okay, now how do we think about this biblically? Well, the date ranges don't fit with the Bible, obviously. Okay, so that's, that doesn't work. But the conclusions are kind of interesting. Two adults giving rise to all of humanity. Got any possible candidates? Adam and Eve. Or, if you look at the cataclysm, Noah and his wife, you know. And more importantly, most of the animals trace back to a single pair or pairs some of them were two by two. Some of the clean animals, a few extras. But it, it, so 
What does it mean? I don't know. But it's kind of intriguing to see that all of a sudden you've got evolutionists going, this sure isn't exactly what we expected here. And so we'll let our people, and Parker has been very good at bringing some of our scientists from the Institute for Creation Research or Answers in Genesis. I'll let them look it over, figure it out. But I just thought I'd mention that it's really one of those things that has been very troubling for our evolution friends. So anyway, that's a science one. Lovey said, okay. Can we do anything besides science? You know, I hated science. I never want to talk about science again. Well, the other question I got, this one came by email, by the way. As EJ comes up here, you can fill out the slip or you can send the email. This one came in this week. Why do I have to commit to Christianity to have a relationship with God? Why are not other religions allowed? So that was one of the questions I received this week by email. So let's kind of think about that, because really that is a big issue. Uh, as some of you may know, we've done some very significant studies of the millennial generation at Pro Ministries. And we recognize that the younger you are, the less likely you are to agree with what's called the exclusivity of Christ. You're going to have real questions about that. And that is true in our modern age. Many people have problems with the idea that Jesus is the only way to God. First of all, we see that a lot of people accuse Christians of being narrow-minded because we teach about the exclusivity of Christ. Remember, I was on a secular talk show years ago, and the host at one point uh, said, Do you believe that people are saved through Jesus Christ only? And I said, yes. He said, that's why I hate you bigoted people. And, you know, and really kind of made fun of me on the talk show and everything, you know, but whatever. Yeah, I'm going to deny that. You know, we'll let uh, some other people deny it, but, you know. But I did point out something else. This is not something I invented, by the way, and it's not something we as Christians invented. This is what Jesus taught himself. John 14:6. I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. And John 14, 6 is a real deal breaker for a lot of individuals. And a lot of people say, well, maybe that's not what Jesus meant. Or maybe we just have an erroneous translation of what Jesus said. Well, the problem with that is, is that's what the apostles taught, too. Let's go to Paul, first of all. First Timothy, there is one God and one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus. All the things we heard today from Jarrett Stevens, doesn't that make the case as well? You know, perfect life. And Peter, so we got Jesus, we got Paul, we got Peter. Peter, on the day of Pentecost, standing before the Jews, what does he say? Neither is there salvation in any other, for there is no other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. So that's what is taught by Jesus, by Paul, by Peter. I can give you a long list, but that's not the question. The question is, why do we say that? Why do they say that? And I think we have to go back to Genesis. God created the heavens and earth. He also created us in his image. And after he finished creating, he said it was what? Good. I mean, all the way through the creation narrative in Genesis 1, it is good, it is good, it is very good. So it is a perfect environment. Adam and Eve are placed in that perfect environment, but they're given one prohibition. What was that? Not to eat the fruit of the tree of the knowledge. They did. And because of that, the fall affected four things. 
And I'm going to also point out that every major religion in the world, except Christianity, doesn't address those four things. First of all, there was a brokenness between God and man. We see that in Genesis. Why? Because they're hiding, Adam and Eve are hiding from God. And so there's a brokenness between God and man. Jared Stevens did a great job, so I won't even go any longer into that. He made the case real strong. Number two, there is a brokenness between human beings. We see Adam and Eve arguing and trying to pass blame on anyone else. If you've ever been in a marriage relationship, you know what that's all about, right? You know, she did, he did. You know, so you see the brokenness vertically. You see the brokenness horizontally, right? Two more. Also, there's a brokenness between human beings and nature because now, because not only are we sinful, but we live in a fallen world, right? And so we have thorns and the animal world no longer benevolent. You know, we uh, don't, we anticipate a time when the lion will actually lay down with the lamb, but not right now. That's not happening. And then one more. And that is, we became separated from ourselves. You know, this feeling of emptiness, incompleteness, uh, which we had not experienced before the fall. And I would suggest to you that no other religion addresses those four areas. First of all, most religions minimize human sinfulness. Islam says, well, yes, Adam and Eve fell, but God forgave them, and so we have to work our way back into favor in Allah. Okay, so it minimizes human sinfulness. Uh, Buddhism would say, well, we need enlightenment um, and we have desire, so we have to deal with the uh, four noble truths and those kinds of things. Hinduism says, well, the world actually is an illusion and we have through various incarnations eventually reach perfection. And every one of those religions of the world minimizes human sinfulness. They do something else. There's a breach between God and man. They also, I think, question whether or not God is truly holy. Because if God is holy and perfect, how, even with my best works, can I achieve perfection so that I can come in the presence of God? doesn't work. So, as a result, we can see that other religions don't provide an answer for the very significant questions of human sinfulness and the fall. So, how does the Bible answer all that? We already see how the relationship between God and human beings has been resolved, because we heard that today from Jarrett Stevens. God, in the person of Jesus Christ, through the incarnation, actually becomes the individual that bears our sin on him, and then more importantly, there's promise that we just were looking at in Ezekiel, as well as in Jeremiah and Isaiah, promise that a Messiah would actually deliver the entire creation from the bondage of sin. Well, he has done that. We can actually, matter of fact, George and I were just talking about somebody he ran into that said, well, I don't know if I am saved. And I said, well, First John tells us that you will know that you have eternal life. I mean, you can know this moment, if you've accepted Jesus Christ as your Savior and Lord, that you have eternal life. But we still have some other brokenness. How is that resolved? Well, we can resolve that in another way and recognize that we actually are looking forward to a time in which all of those brokennesses, all those areas in which we're broken, will be healed. But here's something to think about. 
as I oftentimes ask other people who say, well, isn't it possible that God could have saved some other way? I guess it's theoretically possible, but if mankind, if human beings could have been saved in any other way, then why would Jesus have to die in the first place? Isn't that the question in the Garden of Gethsemane? You know, is there any other way? And if there is another way, then why would he have to die and take on the sins of the world? And I think his death, if nothing else, answers the question that there's no other way. And so no other religion, no other religious leader can bring someone to the knowledge of God. You ask Buddha, for example. He says, I'm a way shower. I'm showing you the way. I mentioned Muhammad just a minute ago. Muhammad at one point is told in the Quran that he is sinful and that he needs to ask for forgiveness for his sins. And Muhammad says in the Quran he does not know whether he will be saved. He does not know whether his followers will be saved. It all depends on the will of Allah. Just think about this. You know, so again, I can take you through every one of these religions that hope that maybe I can do enough good works that eventually God will grade on the curve, like those professors sometimes we hope they would in college, and let you in. And that, I don't think, gives you any assurance of salvation. But the good news is, but the death and resurrection of Jesus answers the question of human sinfulness, but it's not the end, because I put down there, Revelation 21 points to a time when there will be a new heaven and a new earth when all the brokenness will be gone. And even the Apostle Paul, as he's writing in 1 Corinthians, reminds us that death will be the final enemy to be destroyed. And so that's why we believe that Jesus is the only way. And if indeed we believe that, I would suggest that we better start acting like it and sharing the good news with as many people as we possibly can.